When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, wonder-working stars in the precious... they seem are not the results of mass hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial. You're currently tuned into the wrong station. At the end of his life, gasping for a few more breaths and power under the purple sheets of his deathbed, he knew it wasn't famine, plague, or goths or the cataphracts of Persia that had ruined his empire, but the whale. Here's how things began. With the purple skyline of his city dark against the riot's golden fires, he'd been preparing to flee. A small boat would carry them across the strait, away from fires, from teeming crowds, from the constant cries of victory, victory, that echoed through the streets. He and his wife were both born low, he'd reasoned. They could make do with a quiet life. But when the moment came, the Empress had refused to go. Regal for all her common birth, she stood strange and tall beneath the portico of their chambers in full regalia, with the darkness full in the dark purple of her robe, in the shadows of her red hair, and with the golden firelight reflected from the gilded panels of the loros robe that wrapped around her body. From the pearls of her diadem it shone, and from her glass-green eyes. Those who've worn a crown, she murmured, should die without it. What are you saying? An emperor cannot survive as a beggar, she declared, still gazing out at their burning city. And as for me, I will never see the day that they do not call me Empress. They will kill us, Theodora. Now she turned to him, her eyes aflame, and drew that purple robe around herself, so that her outline stood dark as the city's skyline against those distant flames. Purple, 
she lifted her chin, is a fine color for a funeral shroud. He had never been able to deny her. And so, that very night, instead of fleeing for a quiet life, he had called his general Belisarius and his pet barbarian Mundus to the royal chambers and made a plan. And the next night after that, when his eunuch Narses had lured the crowd into the stadium with golden gifts, Belisarius and Mundus had charged their soldiers rank by rank into that entrammeled space and wreaked a slaughter unprecedented in the city's past, filling up the rows and seats with blood and body parts of thirty thousand human lives or more. You should know, this is a real event that I describe. It could have taken place in a city much like yours. But it was after all of this that his trouble with the whale began. Here is the problem. What do you do with 30,000 bodies? Many good ruler knows it takes over 500 pounds of wood to burn just one. Sixteen and a half million pounds of wood to darken the skies above Constantinople and send all evidence of the massacre to God. It simply wasn't economic. And so the emperor improvised, had some of the bodies burned, tipped others into mass graves, fed some to swine, and after that, when the remaining corpses filled with bloat and stink and the city officials had no budget or patience left, they sewed the bodies into stone-filled sacks and dumped them tumbling through the purple waters to the bottom of the sound. Perhaps two million pounds of easy meat. Perhaps that was what had first drawn the whale, and perhaps that was what had given it a taste for human flesh. Porphyrios, they called him, Purple One, or even, if you like, Purple Boy. At first he swam into Constantinople as nothing but a rumor, spoken of in low voices round the sparkling pools of the sacred palace. It came upon them off the coast of Doros, some would whisper in the fountain square, or sometimes it was Kizikus, Selimbria, or even Kalkadong. Twice the size of any whale ever seen, the eunuchs would mutter. Dark as dried blood, would whisper the daughters of the Logothetes. He charged them, smashed the timbers of their ship, and sank them, came the murmur of the sword-bearers. And as they clung to broken spars or tried to swim away, he drowned them, crushed them in between his teeth, or smashed them into foam upon the wave-tops with his tail, and survived. Then Porfirio showed up as a dark wave among the columns of numbers that the imperial scribes would bring the emperor in his chambers. Trade slowed to the Bosporus, ships failed to reach their harbors, revenues stagnated. Alone in his office where gold candles shivered in the black wind of the open arcades. He began, without knowing it, his silent battle with the purple fish. One night, on the royal barge, he crossed dark waters between Constantinople and Galata, that distant dimness of golden lights which he planned to build into a city with his own name. He had his advisors around him, the queen, of course, and rugged Belisarius, and frail Narses, and Mundus, drunk and florid, with his hand trailing in the water, the spilt chalice of Malvasia wine trailing resonated tears along the barge's tessellated floor. They were making plans again. Once more, the plans involved the end of many human lives. Sail with your eight thousand men and land here, 
at Syracuse, the emperor was saying. A map spanned the table between them, and the light of golden lamps was shining in the general's dark eyes as Belisarius sat with chin on hands and contemplated strategy. Meanwhile, Mundus will bring his army up along this road, securing the Dalmatian coast to Salona. Mundus, are you paying attention? But Mundus had pulled himself up, drunkenly, from the water's edge. There's something in the water. He was slurring. Mundus, you're drunk, said Narses. But then the Empress stood as well, and Belisarius, and they all felt a presence passing through the water below. A murmur of great movement, a sense of something sailing silent through the night below. Seizing hold of a lantern, Belisarius leaped to the rostrum, waving the flame and shouting for a warship that sailed off the port stern. Mundus, laughing, shouted something in Gepid to his bodyguard, and those barbarians sprang to the gunwales of the barge with darkness reflecting from the scales of their armor, with their yellowed spear points pointed downward at the waves. Let him come! The barbarian shouted, kicking his wine glass into the sound. Let him meet the men who killed the vandals at Ad Decimum. Narses was saying something quick and silent to the bosun, whose hands were busy at the halyard ropes. Wind bellied in the sails and the barge lurched forward. The emperor stood paralyzed by fear, by his own uselessness halfway out of his seat. Only the empress remained completely still, utterly composed, with her hands folded on her lap. Then something struck the ship with unbelievable force. Timbers splintered, silks tore, lanterns tumbled, flaming from their hooks. One of the gepids was thrown into the water and immediately dragged down by the weight of his armor. Water sprayed from cracked parquetry beneath the imperial couch. The emperor leaped unsteadily away, in time to see some huge shadow pass beneath the far corner of the barge, leaving a wide black delta in its wake. Yet still the empress sat still as an icon, refusing to unpin heavy gold or gown of freighted brassade or to remove her heavy diadem. Into the water! Shoot into the water! Mundus was shouting. Two of his gepids unslung their recurved bows and drew long arrows as the wake began to veer around toward them once again. Help is coming, Belisarius called as the gold outline of the warship began to veer behind them. Hold on, shouted Narses as the wave built toward them. Loose, shouted Mundus. Arrows hissed into the wave, which did not slow, but only built and built upon itself in rushing silence until the dark crest stood ten feet high. Fire was blazing golden on the barge's deck from the fallen lanterns. Then the wave hit, and fire hissed out as the barge was ripped in half. The world spun loose. All was darkness, and the Emperor fell and hit somebody and tasted blood, and then grabbed hold of something hard and clung to it tightly as the water came over him and dragged him into freezing depths. He squeezed his eyes and mouth tight. In cold darkness could only feel the passage of things sinking alongside him, and once, for a moment, the clawing of fingernails against his sleeve. He could hear nothing but the muffled crash of wood, muffled screams from the surface, and beyond them the slow and incredible rhythmic boom of something enormous passing through the depths nearby. Then he burst through the surface, screaming and coughing, gasping and shouting. Clawed hand reached for the trembling light of the warship. I'm over here! Help me! I'm over here! 
but he wasn't the only one shouting. The straight surface was littered with golden wreckage from the barge, with people drowning and screaming. One of the Gepids was clung to the hull of an overturned lifeboat nearby, but as the Emperor turned to swim toward him, the sea suddenly erupted. Man and boat were lifted skyward to the edges of the moon, and then both destroyed between shearing jaws. The whale crashed down, and its wave was a storm surge, tossing and tumbling the Emperor like a butterfly in its wake. Then all was silence on the water's surface, but the sound of the creature's great clicking voice struck like hammers at the Emperor's legs below the water. Now the warship was near at hand, scorpions loaded at the rostrum, shouts from sailors, torches signing to other warships sliding now across the water's face. But the sight of the Emperor's ships was cut off as a mountain rose from the water between them. Porphyrios, how vast that monolith of flesh, like an absence against the night sky, reaching upward and downward endless from the water's face, and staring in fury with one great and red-lipped eye. The depths of that gaze were dark and purple as the night, a glimmer faintly with the city's distant, bloody gold. He stared up into that eye for days and years. The soul shrank within him to that of a gibbering animal, and the eye which stared back was not a whale's eye. Then flaming arrows and pitch-smeared burning iron bolts began to thud into the whale's flesh, and it was only flesh, and when the great fins spread and knocked him half unconscious in the flood, they were only fins. And when the heavy flukes rose starward and came shattering down upon the warship's prow, they were only the flukes of a whale. Yet when the whale was gone, and his mariners pulled him from the sea, and wiped the blood from his face, and wrapped him in warm wool, the only words he said were, That was no whale. Mundus and Belisarius had swum to safety, but it was many hours before they found Narses and the Empress. The eunuch was clung damply to a spar halfway to the Sea of Marmara, but the Empress was floating on a chunk of the broken barge, still seated in her chair with jewels and heavy clothes intact, waiting patiently for rescue with her hands still folded in her lap. This was only the beginning. In years that followed, Emperor and Whale would wage parallel wars. For half a decade, Belisarius marched up the plague-depopulated homelands of the former empire, breaking Gothic battlements and armories in victory after Pyrrhic victory, till his soldiers marched thin and bloated, shitting red from the bad water, and gold ensigns hung from cities' hollow shells, cities showing nothing for their liberation. And then, in Persia... And then in Italy again, as the Goths' new king went up and down the land, undoing all that Belisarius had done. And all this while, the whale remained a second front. In the years of Gothic and Lazic war, Porphyrios destroyed more than sixty ships around the Bosporus Strait. Some small boats with two or three fishermen aboard. Most heavy-laden merchantmen whose wax or wine or pottery were missed in the thinning markets of Constantinople. 
Others were sleek dromans, warships of the line, and one, a threety, a six-decked hexareme, pride of the Imperial fleet. Five hundred souls had crewed it. He dreamed of them often, swimming for their lives amid the gilded flinders of their ship, while the whale's great eye rolled with pleasure in the water, and its huge teeth glutted themselves upon the sailors' broken ribs and bloody spines, filtering them moaning from the water like so much krill. When the Emperor received news of the flagship's loss, he ripped a priceless manuscript to shreds, kicked a golden footstool, and flung his jeweled ink pot through the open window. Gems scattered, rare flowers stained in the orchid garden, and the gilded peacocks fled. Narses, bring me whalers, he commanded. Bring me the greatest whale killers from every corner of the globe. And they came. Greeks and Lusitanians, with beaked prows and harp pagans and nameless ships and javelins. They came, white-eyed naked savages from Skansa with their heavy axes and sleek-spearing pearl divers from the Coromandel coast. They came with engines of delicate and lethal clockwork from Persia, with broad spears and outrigged canoes from the Spice Islands past Azania, and with clear gut coats and whale-skin shields from the frozen rocks of Thule. Whoever they were, and from whence ever, he welcomed them with gifts of fine cloth and gold bezants, and whoever they were, and from whence ever, they would never return again from the sea, unless briefly to touch shore in the form of a fine pink foam. In the fifth year of that unusual war, a strange ship with wooden sails arrived in Constantinople. Its crew were merchant adventurers and alchemists who would not say from which land they came, but who greeted him as King of the Twilight Kingdom, and promised to kill the whale in exchange for a ship full of silver. The Emperor promised it. When that ship raised sail on the black waters of the Sound, thousands gathered at the sea walls in Neorian Harbor to watch those wooden sails catch wind. From the Castellian Tower across the Horn, the Emperor looked down as well. But, though the foreigner's ship was a great curiosity, he found his eyes drawn back to that great throng of gathered human beings. Who were they all, and how could they be so many? Together they were like a great beast coiled at the far side of the water, as huge and terrible as the whale. The thought shivered him, but feeling the eyes of his courtiers upon him, he commanded for the great chain across the horn to be dropped. The wind rose, and the ship of alchemists sailed down onto the strait. A great cheer rose from the gathered crowds. The emperor flinched. But then that cheer turned to a shout of alarm. For on the water a strange wave had risen, high and dark as a burial mound. The ship of alchemists had sighted it as well, for a shout went up from the deck, and bright flags died with strange symbols were raised, and strange instruments struck a brave tune from the deck. There were secret weapons hinted at on board, and the Emperor's own alchemists and soldiers craned their necks dangerously at the parapet to see what unfolded on the deck of their ship. The wave rose. Even from here a dark outline could be seen just beneath its darkness water, long as a ship and wide in the fins at its spars, and building speed as it hurtled from the depths. Some shouted signal from the alchemist's ship, 
and then a terrible cracking sound which echoed against the city walls, making the onlookers cover their ears and hunch beneath the battlements. A gout of red flame ejaculated from the ship, and then a yellowed smoke which boiled across the surface of the sea. A momentary ragged shear from the crowds, and then the whale struck the ship. The entire craft shivered. Men leaped at the gunwales, stabbing down with long spears that suddenly donned into points of brilliant fire before snuffing themselves in the whale's flesh. But that great darkness under the water, undaunted, raised dark flukes and pounded the waves, driving the ship out of grip with the wind, so that it now lurched a different direction, and the wind and current caught it, and the men fell from the sails like mayflies at the end of spring, and now the ship of alchemists was flowing down the strait, spinning slowly like a twig in the river while the sailors tried desperately to stay its course. Emperor, should we send the fleet to help? Send them out. The Emperor commanded, not from concern for the alchemists' lives, but for the chance of killing that whale. Though the ships were waiting, crude and ready for the order, no sooner had it been spoken than the whale struck the alchemists' boat again, cracking the joints and timbers of its outer shell and letting in the cold, dark sea. The ship listed but did not sink. The alchemists fired their strange weapons down into the whale's flesh, and though floods of the creature's blood began to thicken the waters of the sound, still it hurled itself against the flanks of the strange vessel until its inner chambers broke, and it went over like a child's paper boat in the city gutters. A moment later, the ship exploded. Shouts of dismay upon the walls. A rain of fiery silvers fell, turning back the royal fleet and rattling against the stone battlements. Amongst them landed a chunk of burnt flesh on the back of the emperor's hand, searing him so badly that the scar would last the rest of his life. And then, in silence, all those thousands on the walls looked on as Porphyrios dove and surfaced, surfaced and dove, smashing, swallowing, drowning, fleeing swimmers in the wreckage. By twos and threes he hefted them in his jaws, as if to show the people on the walls what it looked like when he split their bodies into purple ribbons. And all this the more surreal that had happened in plain daylight on a blue-scudded summer morn. At last, as the sleek Romans wheeled and raced out after him, the whale dived and was gone. Long silence on the Castellian walls. The eyes of all those gathered thousands turned to look at him, and it was like being beneath the red-rimmed gaze of the whale. The emperor tried not to show his fear. To Narses he said, Send to Italy. Bring me Belisarius. The general who returned was not the handsome man who'd once drank purple wine on the royal barge. Fifteen years at war had turned him leathery and thin and hollow-eyed, the death of Mundus and so many other friends, the plague, the Goths and Persians, Narses and the Empress plotting behind his back, always fighting, never winning by enough. There was no pride left in those slumped shoulders as he rode down the street of silversmiths, the Emperor could see as much from the palace walls. And yet, the crowds cheered him. It had been long years since the massacre at the stadium. Now the public only knew him as their hero, 
their shining conqueror of Africa and Italy. They did not know, as emperor and general did, how much had been spent to win so little in those wastelands of the West. Victory! shouted the crowds. Victory! And both emperor and empress shuddered at the memory of that word. She rested a hand on his arm, and he knew what she meant by the significant look in her glass-green eyes. But he shook his head. No, Theodora. We need him. That night, while Emperor and General sat drinking in silence by the dim candle of the council chambers, the Emperor asked him, How will you kill me this fish, Belisarius? The General stared long into the candlelight, which muttered on the surface of his wine. Others have hunted this whale like a beast, he said at length. I fight him like I fought the Gothic king. And, indeed, for fifteen weeks, Belisarius waged a war of position up and down the Aegean. He was used to, by now, spending human lives, and willing to sacrifice his ships if it meant he could steer the whale to shallow water. By sixteenth week, he had lost three ships and watched their crews be ground to paste between the whale's jaws. But he had cornered Porphyrios in the lagoon called Coloni, which cleaves the Isle of Lesbos in two parts. There he put his plan into action, and began to sink piles into the lagoon's shallow seafloor, building a stockade. Like an army with its supply line cut, he planned to let the whale starve. But Porphyrios was aggressive and decisive as any Gothic king. On the second night at Coloni, he charged the unfinished barricade, letting the ships fill him with harpoons as he smashed free of the pails and hold two more vessels underneath the waterline. For eighteen hours straight he dragged the general's ship, eventually smashing it against the rocks of the Mytilene Strait with such force that the harpoons tore loose from his flesh. Six hundred men died on the expedition, but Belisarius returned to Constantinople with one twenty-foot fin carried on the back of two oxen. Another victory for the old general, paid too heavy and for too little gain. Yet, when he returned to the city, the crowds cheered him once again, and on the palace walls the empress muttered, This man must be destroyed. One fin was enough to damn the general, but not enough to save him. And so, with Belisarius removed, Porphyrios's ocean reign was uncontested, his maiming and brush with defeat had turned him vicious and paranoid, and now the great whale became obsessed with the destruction of warships. He would run them down, whatever the cost, no matter how many harpoons slashed him open to the sea, no matter that sea lice the size of human hands had begun to breed inside his open wounds. But the whale's rage had also grown... cold, deliberate... Where once he'd been satisfied to merely drown sailors or burst them like sardines between his teeth, he now sported with them, herded survivors of his attacks onto rafts of jetsam and kept them there for days in sight of land, daring them to swim, watching them turn on one another to strangle and choke with emaciated hands, watching them slake their desperate thirst on brine at first, and later human blood. Those that did swim 
he would fling into the air again and again, trying to see how far he could launch them before the impact of the water surface broke their frail necks and backs. Soon, a sky-dimming cloud of gulls began to follow him like a billow of steam, their heads red and bald from ceaseless thrusting in between the ribs of screaming men. And all this while, the Emperor's only response was to wall himself inside the palace and grow old. He no longer ventured to the walls, for fear he'd see the dark shadow at the water's surface. He even grew to hate the shining pools of the palace gardens. Once, when his nephew put a little wooden boat to sail on the fountains, the Emperor flew into a fury and strode into those waters, trailing purple cloth behind him, and smashed the boat to smithers, though it bloodied his hand and the infection afterward took several weeks to heal. He had the fountains filled with sand. Depressed by his failure to destroy Porphyrios, he turned to further wars, dispatched Narses with fresh legions to Italy and the ancient general Liberius to Spain, there to carve out indefensible new provinces with liver-spotted hands. In candle-lit offices, he watched the whale swim through page after page of stalling revenues. When the plague returned and returned again, he saw the color of that whale's purple flesh and swelling buboes. As the empress slowly withered from cancer, he sat by her bedside and watched her fade beneath the sheets of vivid purple gold, much as his empire withered beneath the bright, expanded colors on his maps. When that cancer spread to her lungs, he sat beside her with his hand in her cold, limp claw, weeping softly as she drowned from within, remembering that miraculous night she'd been found still throned in the wreckage of the barge, still crowned and imperious. But as she slipped away from him, he murmured, The whale got you at last. Here is how the end came. In the final year of his life, a messenger came to him. He was all alone by then. They had all gone on before. Narses and Mundus, the Empress, even Belisarius in shameful exile. Now he was alone with twenty million subjects, strangers who did not know him and who loved him not. Most holy master, the messenger prostrated himself on the floor. I bring you news of the whale Porphyrios. He's run aground not far from the city and become stuck. An anti-climax. How often had he stood at the sea wall in his younger days, longing for some final reckoning with the beast? How many times in his daydreams had he taken to the sea and driven a lance into the creature's eye amidst the sinking ruin of his own ship? How oft had he wandered by the palace fount? Why these daydreams ended in his death? And why that always made him feel joy? Mm. Then we will go and see, said the Emperor. It was the first time in many years he had left the palace. Even surrounded by his bodyguard of shining-scale cataphracts, it made him feel vulnerable to ride beneath the rooftops of his own city, to feel the eyes of subjects from the upper windows, from the throngs that lined the street to watch his catafalque go past. And then beneath the open sky, as huge and blue and senseless as the sea, 
oppressive and horrific above him. It took several hours' ride to reach the seaside village, that stretch of sandy beach where the whale had come aground. By then, Porphyrios was still alive, though in such a state, even the emperor pitied him. Yet, even beached, wheezing and bloody, the sight of him inspired awe. He was ninety feet from tail to tip, heaped up on the beach at thrice a tall man's height. He was unlike any whale in the philosophic books the emperor had studied for so long. His shape was most like a sperm whale, with great head and muscular trunk, yet his remaining fins stretched long and wing-like, with processes like fingers or pinions on an angel's wings. He was dark as purple night, and covered all with dark, sleek plumage, like a cormorant or swimming bird. His jaws were wider than a sperm whale's, his head less bulbous, his teeth a double row made for the rending of great prey. He was so unlike anything the Emperor had ever seen, in all the menageries brought to him from every corner of the world. His red-rimmed human eyes still stared with unconcealed madness and with hate. He was chasing dolphins when he came stuck on that sandbar out there, said one of the villagers, thrusting out a bloody finger. It's only a few feet deep, and never gets worse than chest deep closer up. So we got together and dragged him in. We used to be fishermen here. Everyone has lost someone to that fish. Ropes and hooks had been brought from three villages over to bind Porphyrios, and it had taken close to one hundred oxen to drag him from the sandbar up to the shallows to the beach. The immense weight of him drew those ropes into his flesh like wires, now some so deep that they couldn't even be seen, except as the source of seeping blood. He had exhausted himself trying to get off of the sandbar, yet even so, Two men and six oxen were killed before the Emperor's eyes when the purple giant thrashed a final time, dragging the ox team off its hoofs and into a pile of broken bones and reddened horns. Blood had soaked into the shallows, and with a thick pink tongue the whale had lapped it up. But the villagers had their revenge. Using axes, billhooks, chains, and shovels, they began a methodical project of disassembling his body. They carved deep fissures into his flesh and ripped away the sheets of blubber like paper from a gift. Then they struck muscle, and as the sun set, began to find bone. Children of the villages nearby were setting up bonfires, so that the work of vengeance could continue after dark. For a long time, the Emperor watched them work. Big men stripped to the waist, using big, full-body swings to delve that purple flesh. Peasant women with hand saws and kitchen knives, laughing and gossiping as they worked in little cliques, each extracting a pound of flesh for every pound of loved one they had lost. Small men amusing themselves by sticking knives into the skin around the whale's eye, or by tossing fistfuls of manure into his open, gasping mouth. Children did their part by hauling boiling kettles to fling into the whale's open wounds. As twilight faded purple and the gold of bonfires rose, the emperor still looked on as the great whale shrank by chunks, yet somehow clung to life. 
At last, the flayed creature began to shudder, seeming near its final strength. One of the villagers came up to the emperor, offering some ancestral rusted spear, perhaps from above the mantle of his own cottage. Merciful master, do you wish to perform the killing blow? Pushing aside his bodyguard, the emperor took that spear, trudged down through yellow sand to where Porfirios lay panting, gazing wildly at him, raised the spear to his shoulder, and looked the whale in the eye, and saw, saw the loneliness of power there, his final peer, in all the world, his final peer. He could not bring himself to drive the spear point home. He was an old man now, his shaking hands steeped in the blood of so many more than the whale had ever slain. On one single night alone, a quarter century ago, he had killed so many more. Purple, he murmured sadly to the whale, is a fine color for a funeral shroud. He let the spear drop and returned to his chariot, to the knot of armored bodyguards who now closed nervously about him. The villagers were outraged at his gesture. They stopped all activity and turned slowly to look at him, the fury and disbelief all firelit upon their faces. For the first time in many years, he felt physically afraid. They had killed one thing in purple. The day could not be long before they tried again. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is you tune into the show. This week's episode, Porfirios, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Batello. Thank you to Kurt Hooper, Mei Lin, Pseudofro, Don Duzette, Anina Bogdani, Julia Alex Y, Hannah Harris, Zaki Conda, and Molly for helping us keep the lights... well... off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alain Citron, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on social media, at The Wrong Station, and email us at thewrongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.